Well, good evening, and uh, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be here and to uh, preach in a couple more times, Lord willing. Uh, we'll be looking at the book of Zechariah as, as far as we can get. Uh, today, uh, I, somehow I got the wrong uh, numbers typed in, but it's Zechariah chapter 1. We'll start at the very beginning, verses 1 to 6. Uh, so, um, and if you're wondering where it is, uh, Zechariah is the next to last book of the Old Testament. Uh, there were three prophets that were uh, after the time uh, the people came back uh, from captivity, Haggai, Zechariah, and then Malachi. So the, uh, the prophets of restoration are called. I might say uh, one thing to children, uh, I think sometimes children like to draw a picture. You might draw a picture of a road and then some people heading in one direction on that road, and in the sermon, I'll tell you something else to add to that picture later on. So let's uh, turn to the Word of God in Zechariah chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 1 to 6. This is God's inherent, inerrant and infallible Word. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants of prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So that they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, he has, so has he dealt with us. One of the great challenges to any organization is complacency or apathy. See it especially in sports. A, a team wins a championship and then to repeat the next year is nearly impossible. They don't have quite the drive, ambition as they had the previous year. It uh, can affect uh, political parties. If they're winning elections and uh, everything is going well, they can become complacent. Uh, the representatives can become unresponsive to the people. And they think more about themselves than the interests of the people elected them. Same thing can happen in business. 
you think you feel fine about your business and you don't think about the future. What's a business model going to be? And you think your business is doing fine and then you know, Walmart comes in and undersells you. And then Amazon comes in with a completely different model. And suddenly you're in trouble. Well, the same thing could happen in the church. Churches can grow apathetic, can become complacent. As a new congregation, they start off with a lot of zeal. They have a sense of mission, a vision. They want to see the lost come to know Christ. And so at the beginning, everybody is working hard. They're maybe having two or three tasks to do in the church. And, you, and people are stretched beyond their normal comfort zones trying to help out. But then in a few years, the congregation is growing. They don't have to do as much. The pews are comfortably full. The offerings are big enough to, to pay for all the needs. You have a settled pastor, a settled elders. You become complacent. Sure, it'd be nice to have another new family or two, to have uh, the kitchen repaired or you know, start a singles group. But everything's pretty comfortable. You're happy with the way things are. There's no longer that zeal as when you began. And Zachariah, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is speaking to a people who are, who are satisfied with their condition. And we may look at it and say, well, weren't they pretty needy people? And yet they're satisfied. They're happy with the status quo, and that shows especially in the lack of rebuilding of the temple. They began it a number of years before, but now they're satisfied. And it's speaking to, to us as Christians in any, every generation. Are we striving after God? Are we really seeking after God? Are we content? with the status quo. And so we'll be looking in these uh, first six uh, verses, five things. First is the structure of the book, and it's there for you, the, the historical context, and then the role of God's word, and then God's message to us, which is repent, and then the hope when and as the people repent. And so we'll look at the destructive Zechariah. Uh, you might just uh, look at the outline very quickly. And today we're looking at that first section. It's, a, it's the introduction, the call to repentance. And so the, the theme here is that the people need to repent. The, the cure for apathy is repentance, to turn afresh and, and seek God. And after that will come uh, eight visions, and we'll see at least some of those. And uh, there's some very interesting things, a woman in a basket, a flying scroll, and what do all these things mean? 
And they're words of comfort and hope for the people of God. There's a practical question in chapter 7 and 8 about fasting and a point to a deeper spiritual situation that needs to be addressed. And then the final chapters deal especially with the coming one, the Messiah. And so in great detail, we see the work of Jesus Christ, and especially as a suffering servant. He's going to be great and glorious, but he also faced difficulties, hardships, being rejected, and ultimately dying. And uh, those last chapters are, tri- are quoted more in the Gospels when it comes to the final half than any other portion of Scripture because they see how much Christ is pictured in those chapters. And the book is to be an encouragement. But the first six verses are sharp call to repentance. God is going to give overflowing grace. But he wants his people in the right mood. Not just to sort of assume we're the people of God and God's grace is going to come to us no matter what. But as they repent, as they're seeking God, then they will receive that message of grace that message of comfort. And today we could do the same thing. Some so emphasize love, 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 love. Well, everything's going to be great. And we don't understand our sin and how it interferes with our fellowship of God. We need to understand both the God of love and the God of judgment. Second point is the historical context. Now, the timing is very easy. It's there in verse 1, the eighth month and the second year of Darius. That's November 520 B.C. We know exactly what it is. And the author is named and his father and his grandfather. And it seems to be that they're from the priestly line that one that would know about the cleansing and uh, the sacrifices. And he's one of the three that comes after the return from the exile. And so you have Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. The prophets of restoration. The nation has been restored to its ancient borders. But much greater is the restoration that has to take place in the nation, in the hearts of the people. And the rebuilding of the religious customs and practices of the people. Restoring the temple. And we'll see the importance of that. Now if we were to just briefly go through the Old Testament, we would see that uh, Israel has highs and lows. It it starts off really uh, in a very high fashion with being freed from Egypt under Moses and then going in and conquering the promised land under Joshua and then comes the 
They, later on, the kingdom and its glories under David and Solomon. But then there's sort of a decline. And so if you look down and look at the order, it'll come to, uh, to 722. Then the northern kingdom is taken away into captivity. And the southern kingdom, as it remains, doesn't change their ways. And starting in 605, you can see that the Babylonians start afflicting them, start taking some away. And so in the, in the first uh, sweeping away of people, Daniel goes into the captivity, into Babylon. And then there's a, one about a decade later, and Ezekiel goes into captivity at that time. And then the lowest point, really, in the nation's history in 586. There's utter and complete conquest. The city is besieged and broken into. The walls are destroyed. The temple is destroyed. The, the palaces and any large house is completely destroyed. Most of the people are either killed or taken into captivity. A few of the poor just remain. And that point, the nation really becomes a, a slave state under Babylon. Always under foreign powers. Later on, it's the Medes and Persians, and then it's the Greeks, and then by the time we get to the New Testament, it's the Romans. And it's a very low time for the people. And you could think that that would be the end of the story. But you see on the timeline, there's a king, Cyrus, a pagan king who announces a new policy that those who have been taken captive can go back home. And so the following year, some of the Israelites go back to the promised land. Now, interestingly, most of them stay in Babylon. They prefer being in Babylon, being in a foreign nation with all their foreign gods than returning home. But a remnant of them return home. And they start to rebuild. And they think about their religion. And so they first lay, set up an altar. And then they lay a new foundation for the temple. And you may remember the description how the, the young men rejoiced at what was done, and the older men wept, having seen the, the previous temple. It was so small and unattractive compared to the one that Solomon had built. And there's hostility around it. And so the quickly, quickly the people stop their work of rebuilding. They settle in the land. They build homes for themselves. They start uh, cultivating crops. 
but day by day, week by week, Sabbath day by Sabbath day, the center of their religion lays in ruins. And God calls them to repent. He raises up a man, a prophet, named Haggai. And if you look at the description, 520 in September, two months before Zacharias starts, he calls the people to repentance, to start rebuilding. And, you know, the people are saying, well, it's not time to rebuild. They come up with all sorts of reasons. But Haggai calls on the people to to consider their ways. They work hard, but there's no increase. They try to save some money, but it slips out of their fingers. It's a way of God saying, now look, I'm not blessing you. All that you're doing is, is incurring more wrath. Because you're living in panel houses. And my house is is in ruins. Consider your ways. And the people respond. And it takes them four years to, to rebuild the temple. And a month later, in October, Haggai gets a second message and it's to say that even before that that building is taking is coming into picture you know is being you know taking form and shape because you've changed your attitude i'm blessing you instead of the cursing of before i'm blessing the people shook off their complacency. And I wonder how often are we complacent? I remember as a seminary student going to church in the church building, and you, and you looked, and over the, the front door, there are a couple rotten eggs. And I, and I asked the pastor, I said, well, back Halloween... I think it was a Halloween a year before. Somebody had thrown a couple of uh, eggs up on the church building. Right by the front door. And it was still there. Nearly two years later. They'd gotten used to it. The eggs had sort of faded into the background. They'd go in and out every week. And they never saw it. And I wonder how many times as a church we get complacent. Do we accept the the status quo instead of being stirred up? And sadly, the, the people didn't see The temple in ruins. 
and what that meant. Because what did the temple symbolize? It symbolizes God's presence with the people. What was the most important thing that they needed? It was God's presence with them. As they came and as they worshipped. And Ezekiel 10 is, is a very fascinating picture. And there's a, a lot of hard images there. But the essence of what's in that chapter is God departs. His presence departs out of the temple and moves to the east. And it's saying God was no longer with his people. His presence was no longer with them. Is it any surprise that a couple years later, the temple is destroyed and the people are scattered? And how we should want God's presence with us every time we worship and really all that we do. And we can get complacent. Everything's going fine. Third point is, look at these verses. There's an emphasis really on the word of God. It's a living God who's speaking, who's addressing these people, who's calling them to repentance. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came. Verse 3, Thus declares the Lord of hosts. Verse 3 again, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 3 again, in case we missed it. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse verse 4 again, declares the Lord. God wants to make sure that, that the people know he is the one, the mighty one, the covenant God who is speaking to them and addressing them in this call to repentance. God goes on to say in verses 4 and 5, their forefathers failed to listen as the prophets went to them and, and spoke a message of repentance, that what they were doing was wrong, their reliance on foreign powers, and their mistreating of their fellow Israelites and all the rest that they were doing. They were being warned time and again. Time and again that the captivity was coming if they did not repent. And there's a bit of irony here. It says both those rebelling forefathers and the prophets both died. The righteous and the unrighteous alike had died. And the contrast is with the word of God. Because it goes on to talk about that word. That it came true. That those prophecies of captivity came true. The word of God is what's eternal. It never fails. It's never out of date. It brings life. It brings restoration. It brings repentance. And many 
church has forgotten this. That the word of God is is at the center of true worship. And churches are looking for all sorts of wow factors. And I don't know how much you've experienced this. and Have skits up front or smoke machines or special lighting showing, you know, video clips from Leave it to Beaver or whoever. As if that makes worship, true worship. But it... Two pastors were talking, and I overheard them. And then one said, "Well, we've really revitalized our worship. You know, that got my ears. What are we doing? What are you doing? You know, well, we start each each worship service with one of the classic Saturday Night Live skits." And the other pastor said, uh, "You mean a, a Christian version of it? A Christianized version? No." It's the old ones, the raunchy ones. All oh, the people love it. They're so excited about the worship. Incredible. It's the word of God that converts men and women, that changes boys and girls, that challenges followers to pursue Christ even more deeply. We don't need skits or Saturday Night Live, whether the cleaned up version or the raunchy one. The fourth point here is God's message here is to repent. Look at verse 2. The first message of Zechariah to the people The Lord is very angry with your fathers. Now, a modern-day communication expert would say, Zechariah, Zechariah, no, no, no. You never start with a negative. Start with a joke. Surely you've got a good joke about three guys and a duck going in a bar or something. But all the people had to do was look around. What did they see? They saw the evidence all around them that God was angry with their forefathers because they did not repent. They did not seek him. You had the temple gone, the city walls broken into and destroyed. Even those great boulders that they built things with were burned with fire, were fragile, were no longer good. What was the answer? The people needed to repent. And God says that. Return to me. That's really the language of repentance. Turning away from yourself and what you're doing and your desires and following your own course and turning back to God. Not to ignore God's wrath or downplay it. Or to think, well, we're children of God and everything is fine. It's repentance. And children, if you 
do that road, you can draw some other people going the other way. You might put a cross where they're going because that's what repentance is, is turning around, changing your heart and your mind from pursuing what you want to seeking after God. How sad it is to note that there's a prominent TV minister who will never use the word repentance on his show. He'll be reading through the Sermon on the Mount and there's two verses on repentance and he will skip those two verses. It's too negative. He doesn't even want to say it when it's part of Scripture. But what we need is repentance, daily repentance, always seeking the Lord. And as report reports that at the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, God stirred up the hearts of the people to begin the work. And they completed it in four years. And the fifth point is with true repentance, there is hope. So far, the message has been negative. It's a hard word to hear. But it's the way God calls his people to faithfulness. To not be apathetic and and content with the status quo. To live in their paneled houses while they're ignoring God and his house. And they have some good excuses. It's just not the right time. Let us get more established. Let us get more fields and and more crops. You know, we're few in number. We don't have enough to to undertake such a, a big task. They're enemies. They're still against us. And verse 3, you return to me and God promises, I will return to you. When you seek God in repentance, his blessing will be upon you. And really the rest of the book of Zechariah is, is dealing with that. It doesn't mean there's not going to be any more hardships or trials. But the overriding factor that the people are to consider is God is with them. So it doesn't matter how strong the enemy is. It doesn't matter how big the obstacles are. In fact, in Haggai 2.9, God promises that the glory of that rebuilt temple as small and as consequential as it might seem, that glory will be greater than that of Solomon's temple. How could that be? It's because of the ministry 
and the person of Jesus Christ. It's into that rebuilt temple that the Messiah comes. Is outside of those rebuilt walls that he dies on a cross. And especially in those last five chapters of Zechariah, it's looking in great detail at the Messiah and what he's going to do in the circumstances of his death. And we can look at how he's valued at 30 pieces of silver. And what does that mean? The people mourning over him in his death. He's being pierced in the side and all the rest that will come up. And we're told in Haggai 2.9 that one of the blessings that will come will be peace. Peace with God, which is the work of the Messiah. And so it's looking forward to Jesus Christ who comes in the fullness of time, born under the law, born of a woman, after the restoration. And so everything had to be in place for Jesus Christ to come into this world. And we can think of how John the Baptist came to prepare the way for the Messiah. But we also see here the prophets of restoration. Haggai and Zechariah preparing the way so that there's a temple that's been rebuilt. The city later on, Ezra and Nehemiah, will have city walls. The city will be rebuilt. And we have prophecies of who to look for. That great shepherd who lays down his life, who's betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, whose side is pierced. It's all to prepare the way for the Messiah. So as you think about applications, let me just mention three and, and in closing. First is thankfulness for Christ. And as we go through Zechariah, and as you would read it through, you can see his sufferings, his death, his taking on of our sins, and how thankful we should be for his willingness to do that. Second, there's a warning here about complacency, apathy whether individually as a congregation. It's easy to just kind of go through the motions, to lack the zeal that we should have, to be salt and light, to be that city set on a hill, to be that church set on a hill that attracts, attracts people to the Savior. And third, for all of us, there's that daily need to repentance. Where have I sinned against God? 
where have I been more interested in my own desires than what God desires of me? Where do I need to turn back and seek the Lord afresh? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, do give you thanks for this uh, portion of Scripture that really is uh, a magnificent uh, view of, of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That one who Zechariah looked forward to, 500 years coming in the future, who would fulfill all those Old Testament prophecies who is that sacrificial lamb who died, who enables us by the work of the Holy Spirit to turn and repent and seek you. So we, we give thanks for that and, and pray that as we understand that, that we would repent individually as a, as a congregation, as, as there's areas maybe where we're no longer as zealous for the lost or for the claims of truth or showing compassion to people, whatever it would be. Stir us up to turn back with renewed zeal and eagerness to serve you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.